maybe we're in a new situation where consumers are essentially going on strike as relates to paying their debts. Um, you know, we we have created a culture of moral hazard on Wall Street, but I think we're starting to see it on Main Street as well. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. Greed and exuberance returned to Wall Street as we ended 2023 and welcomed the start of 2024. Markets are trading near all-time highs, the Fed has switched to singing a more dovish tune, and confidence in a soft landing or even a no landing for the economy is high. Did we manage to emerge from all the chaos and distortion of the past few years without a major reckoning? Have we dodged the bullet of recession? For answers, we're lucky to talk today with top Thoughtful Money fan favorite, Stephanie Pomboy, economic and financial analyst and publisher of the respected research firm, Macro Mavens. Stephanie, it's wonderful to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Adam. Happy New Year. Hey, and same to you. Congratulations. This is my debut on Thoughtful Money. So. I know. And I got to tell you, Stephanie, um, not a day has gone by since I launched the program that I haven't been bombarded with questions of when is Stephanie coming on? Oh, so, please. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for, for oh coming on and, and hopefully shielding me for at least a little while um, from that barrage. Um, but look, lots to catch up on since we last talked. Um, I am very interested to see if your macro outlook has changed at all since we last talked, which was back in, I think, October-ish. Um, because as I just said in the intro, you know, there's there's a lot of green shoots that, that a lot of people are pointing to. And I'm curious if you think those are are, are real and, and, you know, outlook changing, or if maybe they're just providing some false signals right now. But before we get into the details of that, can we just start with my regular broad question I like to kick these discussions off with? What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, I guess my answer to that question is going to get into the, the question of the green shoots and, and the shift in tone from the Fed, because um, as you know, throughout our discussions last year, um, I was just emphatic on the idea that the impact of the higher rates was going to be felt. And just because it hadn't happened yet didn't mean it wasn't going to happen. Um, and everything I looked at in terms of the um, enormous leverage that had been built up uh, since really since the global financial crisis and then uh, took off. Um, really exploded after COVID, um, suggested that uh, there was tremendous vulnerability to the increase in interest rates. And it was just a matter of time before that became evident. And in fact, we did see the largest number of corporate bankruptcies since the global financial crisis outside of COVID uh, last year. Um, and we've obviously seen a huge increase in consumer delinquencies as well and commercial real estate, et cetera. And, yet, and bank failures too. And bank failures, exactly. And yet, um, when you, you know, if you were a man from Mars coming down and looking at the uh, financial markets at the end of 2023, you would have had zero uh, inclination, inclin inkling <laughs> that uh, all of these rate hikes had really taken place. I mean, credit spreads actually impossibly uh, narrowed even as all these uh, delinquencies and defaults uh, materialized. 
So, you know, I was puzzling throughout the year as I watched this, uh, you know, enthusiasm for risk assets in the face of deteriorating credit quality as to how long this is going to be sustainable. Um, and it seemed to me like uh, people picking up, you know, that proverbial picking up the nickels in front of the steamroller. Um, and then, uh, you know, Powell made with his dovish talk after the last uh, Fed conference. And I guess my takeaway from that was he's basically ratifying the market expectations. Mm -hmm. The markets all year refused to hear what the Fed was saying about higher for longer and priced in rate cuts and were therefore willing to continue to extend credit to struggling over levered enterprises because they assumed that those struggling over levered enterprises would be uh, made whole basically as the Fed cut rates and their debt service went back to what they perceived to be a more normal manageable level. So um, long story short, everyone was all in on this idea that the higher rates were a temporary phenomenon that would quickly reverse. So they all made that bet. Banks continued to lend, capital markets, you know, flung the doors open. Um, and so where I am now, there's a very long-winded way to answer your question about my macro view is we're really in this kind of no man's land. I, I call it like a purgatory. We don't know really where we're going. We're in limbo uh, because while the fundamentals are still, the backdrop is still incredibly negative. We still have all this leverage built up, you know, from the government to corporate sectors, to consumers, et cetera. Um, and that debt is rolling at higher rates. However, if the markets and, and lenders are willing to be accommodative on the expectation that things are going to get better, that expectation has the power to create the reality. There's um, a reflexivity there, yeah. Right, just as we saw all of last year, you know, even as corporate bankruptcies piled up, private credit, uh, you know, banks, everyone were willing to go out there and extend credit. Um, so I, I'm now kind of um, have been schooled in the degree to which perception can become the reality. Uh, and so the struggle for me is that, yes, fundamentally, the backdrop is still incredibly negative. Uh, but if hope continues to spring eternal and the Fed does maintain this sort of more dovish posture and ultimately deliver on the rate hikes, you know, maybe the you crisis mean cuts. Sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Rate cuts, boy. <laughs> um, maybe the crisis will, in fact, be averted. I mean, my heart isn't in that thesis. I think mm -hmm. that, you know, it's. Uh, it's still, I like to believe in the triumph of the fundamentals. Uh, and unfortunately, I've, I've been uh, waiting for that triumph for a long time. And it's, uh, it's not materialized. Um, and I also, from the standpoint of actually finally cleansing the excesses that have been built up in our system for decades now, um, would really look forward to a credit bust and a deep recession that finally expunged all these excesses and we could start fresh and start from a really good solid fundamental foundation. Um, much as I 
imagine that will happen. And that's still my main view. Um, you know, I, I've been humbled enormously over the last year by the power of expectation. So uh, I'm, I'm really right now as a cop out, maybe sitting in cash on the sidelines, because again, you're still now getting 5% to wait and see how this fleshes out um, and whether the Fed can deliver the rate cuts the market anticipates soon enough, which is crucial, and aggressively enough to really stave off a meaningful wave of bankruptcies on the corporate side and delinquencies on the, on the consumer side. Boy, that was long-winded, and I don't know if it answered your question. No, but... no, it, no it, it provided exactly the context of, of wanting to know where you are right now. Um, and, uh, and I share about your feeling. I'm sure a lot of our viewers do, too. Um, I want to dig into a couple of things around this, um, if we can. Uh, one, I want to I talk about the role of liquidity um, and how you've seen that impact the, the system here. Uh, I've talked to a number of people relatively recently who believe that that has been a key factor here in kind of pushing off recession, supporting markets, juicing economic growth, you know, basically keeping things better for longer, if you will, you know, economically speaking. Um, and, and I think there's maybe some differing views amongst that camp for how sustainable that liquidity wave will be. There's some like Michael Howe who thinks it's going to continue for the next two years and that we're going to have great two years in the economy and the markets going forward. Other folks not quite as confident. Um, I also talked to um, Wolf Richter, who I think you would probably find uh, to be somewhat of a kindred spirit where he basically said, look, we need a recession, right? He's like, I totally think we need one for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned. He said, but I'm looking at the data and I just, I, I don't see it coming anytime soon. And I just, I, I got to call it as I see it, right? Um, so I'm curious when you talk about us being in limbo right now, do you, are, are we in limbo and you just really don't know how it's going to end up right now? And so you're just still kind of casting around for for clarity or is it, um limbo where we're kind of sometimes markets can grind sideways for a long time before they start coming up again. So we're just kind of grind. Maybe it's this rolling recession that people uh -huh. talk about where we're not going to really net fall into a recession economically, but, but parts of it will weaken, but, but overall we're just going to move sideways until things can, can continue moving higher. Or is this a kind of like an interim period where it's like eating your seed corn you know, in the wintertime, it's eating your seed corn or it's burning your furniture to stay warm, right? Like when you're doing those two things, you're warm and fed, but you right. are you are basically ruining your future prospects. At some point, you've eaten the last year's seed corn and then there's no food left or you burn the last stick of, of furniture and you got nothing to sit on after that. Right. Um, in which of those three out outcomes it feels more accurate to you right now? Well, I guess the last one, um, to the extent that, you know, let's say, for example, you had companies that had borrowed at 4% last year and at, during the, let's say, COVID stimulus extravaganza when rates were, you know, flat on the mat. Um, and they had to roll that paper at 8% last year. And that became a little onerous. So in came private credit lenders who said, you know what? 
we'll take that paper off your, you know, we'll lend to you at six and a half or whatever the magic number was. Um, uh, that sustained them. So, but in the process, they're still massively levered. And unless their fundamental business model turns around, uh, they're, they're still in the situation. It's sort of like you're saying you, with the seed corn, essentially they bought themselves a little more time. They burned through a little more uh, capital um, in the hope that everything's going to be better in the near future. Um, so it's a monster bet. And what if the economy actually doesn't improve and we don't see that increase in earnings that everyone's anticipating? You know, I think S&P earnings are still forecast to grow 12% or something this year. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and those numbers are starting to come down a little bit, but they're still, you know, pie in the sky. Um, so a lot of it will turn on that. I mean, the other thing that I wrap, I'm trying to wrap my head around right now is, and leaves me even more uncertain and in my own mental limbo about where we're going is this prospect that maybe we're in a new situation where consumers are essentially going on strike as relates to paying their debts. Um, you know, we we have created a culture of moral hazard on Wall Street, but I think we're starting to see it on Main Street as well. Um, and a couple things made me think about this as a theme, and that is um, obviously, you know, the student loan payments kicked back in in October, um, but the non-payment rate, from what I've read, uh, is very high. Like a lot of students. Uh, former students who are trying to pay those debts have concluded they kind of threw up their hands and they're basically saying, I don't understand what I need to pay and when I need to pay. And they're basically just not making the payments. Yeah. Um, there's also a stat on, uh, we have a record federal income tax non-payment right now, uh, which is amazing to me. I mean, it's one thing not to pay your student loan debts or your credit card debts or whatever, but to not pay your taxes. So it seems to me like we might be creating a cultural shift where consumers maybe, uh, you know, because Biden suggested he was going to forgive student loan debt, even though it was unconstitutional, and then continue to try to, you know, push for it after yep. the fact, maybe people are thinking, hey, you know, it's okay if I get in over my head on my credit card or my auto loan or whatever, um, because they'll forgive that next. So I, I mean, I'm not sure if this is happening, but I do see hints that maybe there is a little bit of this cultural shift taking place. And that's, that's kind of terrifying, you know, yeah, when... it's such an interesting, uh, I'm so glad you brought this up um, because I think, you know, I've I've touched upon elements of this over the past couple of years, you know, on this channel and, the, and its predecessor. And I, you and I have even talked a little bit about this. Um, you know, we, we, we homeowners, you know, got bailed out um, coming out of the, the, the 2007 uh, housing crisis. Um, obviously, everybody famously knows how Wall Street's been bailed out. Mm -hmm. We bailed out households during COVID. Right. You know, this is the direct checks to, to, to households. We had all these forbearance programs. I, I think you're right. I think we have I think it's understandable to 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 
question, have we built a culture of moral hazard here? And I just looked up the stat while you were talking there. Uh, 40% of people have not made payments on their student loans um, since they went back into repayment, right? So that's getting close to half, right? That That's not an insignificant percentage, right? And so I, I don't think it's too large of a stretch as you're presuming where people would just say, well, wait a minute, if I don't have to really pay my student loan debt, you know, why should I pay my car payment if it's tough this month? Why should I pay my credit card company? And also, as you and I have talked about, we're creating this kind of uh, class warfare where if you didn't have student loan debt and that's being forgiven for your neighbor, you're saying, well, screw that. Maybe I won't pay my credit card debt. Like, why should they get away without paying debts? And I'm sitting here being responsible. So it may very be very well extend beyond the student loan thing and create this kind of cultural sense of I'm not absolutely. And, and that's the Pandora's box that intervention opens, right? Is when you start basically playing favorites to a certain extent, right? You're you're saying, okay, this class here, I'm gonna give relief for whatever reason, and maybe it's well intentioned, but you you unleash this sort of domino effect of um you know, people basically saying, well, why not me? Right. right. Um, so and wh question, where does this end? Is this, does this end embracing MMT and just, Hey, you well, know, that's the question is how, if that's true, and this is why I'm so much in this mental limbo right now. I mean, we've got in the corporate sector, uh, the prospect of a real corporate credit bust, which I had been forecasting for a long time, being forestalled by this anticipation of lower rates and therefore, banks and non-bank lenders just continuing to shovel money to sustain those enterprises. So we've got that on the one hand. And then on the consumer front, where you would think, well, they don't have access to private credit and capital markets or whatnot, um, you know, they're going to get screwed as rates go up. And I mean, we've seen credit card borrowing explode into 23% credit card rates. Yeah, all-time high APRs, yeah. It doesn't make sense. You know, normally uh, borrowing and interest rates don't really move together. You know, when rates go up, people stop borrowing. It's like getting slapped on the wrist. Right. Um, and it's been the opposite this time. So it does make you think that maybe people are saying, look, you know, it doesn't matter how much I borrow. I'm never going to have to pay it back. And if that's the case, um, you continue to see uh, defaults or delinquencies on the consumer credit side. So... I guess the uh, the rubber meets the road when banks and these other lenders find they're not getting paid back. And then that becomes a big enough problem that it's a systemic issue, at which point you can bet that the Fed or someone is going to come in with some kind of bailout. Um, but in the interim, what it's doing is sustaining consumption in the face of what normally would have been a fundamental backdrop that would have seen consumer spending much weaker than it is now. I, I will argue, however, and you've heard me argue this many times before, that consumer spending, while it's held up well, is not nearly as good as it looks, first, because uh, like when you look at retail sales, it's not deflated. So it's entirely, in fact, I think inflation is 3-1 and retail sales were up 3-1 year on year. So there's no growth in retail sales in real terms. And that actually has been the case since March of 2022, the months when the Fed started raising rates. So in essence, 
consumers aren't buying more stuff. They're they're just buying the same amount of stuff and paying it's more. It's costing it's a, more, yeah. Yeah, it's an inflation illusion of strength, but in reality, they're not, you know, spending buying more stuff. Um, however, you would think they'd actually be buying less stuff because you're now seeing a slowdown in employment um, and their debt service costs are back relative to income to the highest level since the global financial crisis. Um, and so they have real pressures at the same time, the basic bare necessities of life, while they're not going up as rapidly in price, are still at a very high price level. Right. And <laughs> um, way higher than they were just two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So uh, you would think all those things would conspire to see them actually cutting back expenditure. And that hasn't happened yet. And perhaps it has something to do with this culture of non-repayment of debts. All right. So I want to dig into that just a little bit more. I've got a bunch of questions about the economy and where you see things headed. So we'll get to those in a second. But um, this is just a really important vein. And I sense that we're going to talk about it more in the future. Um, you know, what's what's interesting culturally is um, we we are, um, when you look in aggregate, right, is we, we, I don't know the right way to say this, but like, we are we see as like belt tightening as like a hardship that is beyond the pale right that that no matter what happens i still need to be able to afford my thousand dollar smartphone mm -hmm. and you know my all my streaming subscriptions and still got to take that vacation and uh you know all that type of stuff and and one thing that kind of <laughs> made me reflect on this was i, I just saw the movie the boys in the boat. Oh, I'm dying to see that. Okay, so so great story. <laughs> you know, Cinderella story, a, a depression era men's crew team from uh, University of Washington, uh, because you know underdog player um, made up largely of of uh, young men uh, from depression era families, where like literally the main character is rowing on the team because that's the only way he can get a dependable meal, right? Uh, but they end up beating all the Ivy League schools and then they end up going to uh, the Olympics uh, in Germany that year. Um, but the, the the main character, and this is, I'm sure, the Hollywood manufactured drama, but, you know, his sort of wound is that his his father left the family when he was 14 and kind of left him on his own um, because the father had to go find work in California. Right. And uh, and then this this guy who's now in college bumps into his bumps into his father in Washington and surprised his father's been actually back in town hadn't reached out and his father says well you know what do you want from me and the, the guy says well look dad I was I was 14 years old when you left and left me on my own and the dad says what do you want from me when I was 14 I was sent to war right and it's just a reminder of like yeah. not that many generations ago like life was really pretty tough for a lot of people Right. And this is still in the 19th, in the 20th century. Right. Like you go back another century or two and talk to somebody who was lived in Russia and, you know, died by the millions or whatever. Right. Like we're at the point now where like, again, having to consider giving up my smartphone is like a, just an unacceptable beyond the pale sacrifice that, of course, nobody could ever make. And the government should step in and make sure that I'm bailed out so that I can continue to do all this stuff. Right. You're just sort of nodding sadly as I'm saying yes, this. I but 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 the reason why I kind of tell that story is is to your point, like we are increasingly, I think, becoming a populace that says things hurt, give me relief, right? And I think we have 
seems an increasing amount of, of politicians, central planners who are willing to say, yes, I will do that for you. That's my job. And maybe it's, uh, you know, I'm doing it as well because I hope you'll vote for me next time exactly. around. Right. And, and where does this end? That is obviously not sustainable. And we end up in a way worse position in, in the long term, I believe, uh, because we basically um, pulled tomorrow's prosperity into today, trying to pay for things that that aren't affordable or sustainable. And that, you know, everybody uh, is is faced with fewer options than they otherwise would have when when the end of the road arrives. Um, are, are you do you have to share the same concern? Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think you are now bringing me to the one thing about which I have certainty in 2024, you know, given everything I laid out at the top, being in this sort of economic limbo. Um, the one thing that seems absolutely clear to me as we look at the federal debt hitting 34 trillion, um, that the dollar is going to pay the price for our monetary and fiscal policy sins big time this year um that we're already seeing the dollar decline on the expectation that the fed is going to pivot you know really uh accelerated its decline after powell's very dovish fomc um and this is just the cyclical force driving the dollar lower mm -hmm. it's just based on fed rate cuts uh and the prospect i would say that they are going to cut rates despite the economy not being in recession and the markets not being catastrophic. Right. So it's essentially going to be an immaculate rate cut or an immaculate easing cycle. To me, that is the most egregious um, monetary debauchery you could ever contemplate. Um, and it seems nakedly political um, as we head into an election year. Um, especially at a time when, as yet anyway, the inflation picture has not come anywhere near to where the Fed really wants it. I mean, sure, you can look at, you know, three months rate of change of the super core or whatever, you know, number you want to look at. But as we talked about earlier, the average guy on Main Street only knows that his cost of living went through the roof and is now getting slightly less, you know, getting more usurious at a slightly less rapid pace. Mm -hmm. So there's been no relief on the inflation front for Main Street. And meanwhile, Wall Street and the Fed look at the drop in the CPI from nine to three and declare victory and imagine that now it's time to provide relief from all of this, you know, oppressive higher interest rates. Um, so to me, the valve for all of the sins will be the dollar. And again, you know, I've just articulated the cyclical side of that back on the heels of this Fed um, shift to uh, easing after tightening. Um, but that you're layering that on top of a secular backdrop for the dollar that's been very bearish for a long time, um, but particularly so after COVID, um, when you have these and after the weaponization of dollar reserves uh, with the sanctioning of Russia uh, after their invasion of the Ukraine. That really was a line in the sand. And you've seen a lot of countries accelerate the diversification away from the dollar and the BRICS plus nations coming together um, more meaningfully in terms of cobbling together 
trade agreements and local currencies and trying to find avenues around the dollar. Um, and I think that uh, this shift in the Fed will greatly accelerate those efforts. Um, and so I think that the, the trade for 2024, or at least the only trade about which I feel confident, is that you're going to see the dollar much lower. And obviously, uh, the mirror image of that would be gold and other precious metals. Um, so that's the one thing where I feel like, okay, I can sit in 5% cash, I can have my gold, I can own some long dated treasuries, um, and just watch and see how this all plays out. And if the Fed really does pursue an immaculate rate cut, um, but if they don't, that secular story of the de-dollarization is still going on. Um, and this is, you know, going farther down the field maybe than you want to on this. But uh, this year's BRICS summit meeting is being held in Russia. Last year it was in South Africa. And because of, uh, you know, Putin being a war criminal, he wasn't able to go to South Africa lest he be extradited. Uh, so he couldn't be in attendance. Obviously, he can be in attendance at the summit this year in Russia in October, and it would make for the perfect time and location for he and Z, she and the other uh, BRICS nations to announce some kind of progress on a joint currency. Um, so I, I just think there that's a pro probability. Um, but even if that doesn't happen, you're certain to see an acceleration in this de-dollarization uh, thanks to the Fed's <laughs> pivot here. Okay. And sorry, do you see the announcement uh, that you were talking about as a probability or do you see it as a as a possibility, like a wild card? They're probably working on something and at some point they'll announce it. Or, or do you think, hey, odds are really good it's going to be announced this summer? I think odds are are good. Um, you know, I don't know that I'd say I'm 100% expecting them to do it, but uh, a lot of us expected them to do it in South Africa uh, and were disappointed that they didn't come together with a statement then. But it does seem to me reasonable that Putin would have wanted to be in attendance and be one of the primary um, authors, let's say, of this announcement. So it's a perfect photo op. Um, but, you know, when you look at what's happening behind the scenes in terms of the shift away from our treasury market and these uh, moves to cobble together trade deals and lots of trade currency. deals that are not in dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's every day there's an announcement. And obviously, Russia has already completely sold its treasury stockpile and holds zero treasuries anymore. So it's not even like it's not buying as many. It's completely liquidated its treasury um, holdings and been working. I think they and China trade almost exclusively in local currencies now. Um, they're not using the dollar for trade. So it's, it, you know, it's almost the announcement will be more symbolic than anything else. But it'll be important symbolism uh, for the West. I mean, I think everyone in the BRICS nations understands that this is happening and they're they're serious about it. It's, you know, the policymakers in the West, the Fed, you know, Congress, uh, the administration, who seem to have their blinders on and imagine that there is no challenge to U.S. hegemony. And they can therefore pursue these wanton monetary and fiscal policies forever 
and there'll be no repercussion to that. And I, I think this year might might change that complacency a little bit. Okay. Um, so since you asked gold, you, you mentioned gold, I just got to ask you, um, uh, it sounds like you think it's going to perform well, period, um, for the reasons you talked about, you know, the, the sort of standard dollar down, gold up um, right. reasons. Um, obviously, if there's if there's a, a new BRICS currency that is denominated in gold grams, which is sort of what the rumor is, that probably be quite gold positive as well. Um, technically, if you look at gold, you know it's it's back trading very close to all time highs now, um, and uh, you know people debate whether this is a real technical um, pattern or not. But you have this sort of like decadal cup and handle that's been building with a triple top on the handle. And we're now back up at that, that, you know, breakout point. Um, I'm assuming you think this could be a real breakout year for gold for a number of the reasons you mentioned and maybe a few others, but are you expecting it to be like a, like a big year, right? Where gold, you know, breaks through its, its price ceiling and then maybe runs by a couple hundred bucks an ounce. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it will be a big year. I think gold will have, I mean, if you go back and look at past easing cycles, if we assume that the Fed is now embarking on a full-fledged easing cycle, gold should go up dramatically. I mean, could it be 3,000 by the end of the year? I wouldn't be surprised. Now, that's aggressive relative to what most people who are bullish on gold are looking for. But to me, that's kind of a slam dunk. Uh, you know, I do silly things like I look at how much uh, what would be the price on gold at which we fully backed the monetary base in the United States? I mean, if you went and Those looked at that, silly, but yeah, it's yeah. right. It's 10 times the current level. So we're 21,000 just to back the monetary base. Now that's just an intellectual exercise, but it illustrates how feeble, you know, how feeble our gold reserve is relative to the amount of money that we've printed over these last several decades. Yep. And compared to a lot of countries around the world, even though we have the largest gold reserve next to Europe, um, relative to the amount of money we printed, it's a drop in the bucket. And then you've got countries like Russia, where the amount of gold that they hold, albeit much smaller than ours, covers 50% of their monetary base. So, you know, there's really no comparison. If they ever did challenge the US and say, look, we're going to back our currency with gold, what are you going to do? Uh, we'd we'd really be hard pressed to compete with that. So I think gold, you know, there are a lot of reasons to imagine that gold could go substantially higher in price. Um, and that's before contemplating the prospect uh, that we actually do have the credit bust that I've been forecasting forever. Mm -hmm. And the Fed not only has to undertake a typical easing cycle, but has to be far more aggressive and then stop and eventually reverse QT and start re-expanding its balance sheet. And you and I have talked at length about, you know, if we had a massive credit bust and a financial deflation uh, the amount of money that would have to be printed to backstop the public pension system, um, <laughs> which is in the multiple trillions. So if you tack that onto the Fed's balance sheet, you know, we're looking at uh, 
12, 15, 15 trillion dollar balance sheet before all is said and done. So that's not going to be bullish for the dollar either, um, but it should be tremendously bullish for gold. So I see a lot of upside for gold. Uh, and as yet, you know, it's not like anyone's actively in there. You don't talk to a lot of uh, retail or uh, hedge fund investors who are out there saying, hey, you know, this is, I'm I'm all in on gold. Uh, you know, it's just, it's still relatively, um, let's say unpopular on on Wall Street, although it's becoming more popular on Main Street. I'm sure you've seen the articles about Costco and Walmart yeah. uh, selling gold. And I know Costco, for one, couldn't keep inventory of it. Um, so there seems to be some growing interest in it. We'll see. All right, we'll see. Um, I do have pensions on my list of questions. I, I, I'm going to guess we're not going to get to it just because I have so many other ones before we get there. But um, uh, all right, so you, you talked about inflation. Um, let's dig into that just for a moment here. Yeah, um, yeah. Because in previous conversations, when we were really looking at the debt overhang, we were looking at the maturity wave uh, that was coming up for corporate America. Um, we were expecting higher for longer and, and you and I, I think have been, you know, respecters of the lag effect. Right. And so we, we, we have expected that as we've moved through the timeline here, the lag effect would continue to become more and more of a visible issue. It hasn't been in many ways. And we've talked about some of the reasons why liquidity being a, a big one, um, to the point where I think a lot of people are now dismissing it. Hey, that we the Fed's been able to finesse this, you know, that we've just been able to make the it's different this time. There's not going to be a lot. Which makes me even more confident that that it's about to happen. That, you that know? it's about to, yeah. So, but but because of the belief in the lag effect, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, you were saying, look, I think we're going to switch from worrying about inflation in 2023 mm -hmm. to really worrying about deflation. You know. It, negative uh, deflation in 2024. And you've talked a lot about how there's historical precedent in, in past cycles where we went from like 5% CPI to like negative 2% in the yes, span exactly. of a quarter or two. Um, so uh, I'm curious if you, if that's still your default expectation for 2024, or if, um, you know, you think for a lot of the reasons we talked about, that's slowing that process down. And I'm just curious, do you have any concerns that if the Fed is pivoting too early here, right, you know, it's yeah. basically going to embark on a more stimulative type policy when the economy is, quote unquote, doing just fine. Um, do we risk an Arthur Burns moment here where all of a sudden the inflationary spirits, you know, uh, resume here and all of a sudden the fed has to backtrack yeah well I, i'm glad you laid it out that way because my deflation or disinflation thesis has always been a function of asset price deflation fueling goods and services price deflation um i never thought inflation in the economy would you know suddenly decelerate absent a correction in the markets yep. and a reverse wealth effect that would be associated with that. So now that we're possibly taking that off the table by the Fed pumping money into the system before the crisis happens, um, 
it does change my outlook for inflation. Now, I'm not one of these who thinks we're headed into some hyperinflation and we're going back to 9%, but could we sit at 3% for a while and defy the Fed's expectation that inflation is going to quickly come down to its target? I think that's a very high possibility, especially when you lay on two things that I was just looking at. Well, one that we all know or are aware of, and that is that um, given what's happening in the Mideast, uh, you've got shipping issues and you have the prospect again of supply chain disruption that will continue to put upward pressure on input costs um, and to some extent feed through possibly to the CPI. Um, but whatever that is, you're going to have more commodity and shipping and basic input price pressures. Um, and then the second thing is we have actually seen, I wouldn't call it a an inventory liquidation cycle, but a lot of the inventory overhang that had been persisting for quarter after quarter after quarter has been chipped away. And typically inventory cycles and inflation, not surprisingly, move together. So when you're building stockpiles, it puts upward pressure on inflation. And when you're reducing stockpiles, obviously it does the reverse. Um, and we've come down sharply. I mean, inventory inventories are now posting no growth, basically. We went from you know a huge increase after COVID when they couldn't initially get any inventory and then they overshot and overordered mm -hmm. the double and triple ordered just so they'd have stuff and then spent quarters and maybe even over a year trying to unwind all of that. Well, they've largely unwound that. So inventories are in a pretty good position. I wouldn't say they're, you know, conspicuously lean, but they're in a decent position where they don't necessarily have to worry about, uh, you know, reducing them significantly farther. Now, I think we're we're pretty even. Um, so what my point is that the disinflationary pressure from drawing down that inventory has already been built into the numbers. So that drop from 9% in the CPI to three was in large part a function of that or alongside of it. Um, and therefore the impetus for further price deflation coming from the inventory thing is probably very limited unless we see a sharp contraction in consumer spending, consumer which spending. for the reasons yeah. we just talked about may not happen um, if people can continue to just run up their credit cards and not pay them back to sustain whatever consumption they want. So related to that, one of the things that has surprised me, and I'm guessing has surprised you in terms of just how things have been able to persist is the labor market held in far better through this Fed tightening cycle than most people expected. Um, and to me, that is the, if not the key, one of the most key dominoes to be watching because if that can remain standing, then yeah, you know, as long as consumer spending is going on, we're a two thirds consumer spending economy, you know, we'll probably muddle through okay. Um, but if that falls, then it's game on for all the parade of horribles that, you know, we've been talking about right. forever. Um, yep. and, and looking at the market, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a it jobs market. I mean, it is, um, 
I can definitely name some stats that are softening. You know, the the the, the quits rates are down. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, some of the payroll numbers aren't, they're not bad, but they're not great. Uh, uh, but, you know, like continuing claims are coming down again. So like that's positive. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like the job market is flashing super warning signals at this point in time. So while, you know, from a lag effect standpoint and all sorts of reasons, we could think it it should have probably fallen by now, or or we could think that there's risks for it to fall. It still looks a lot more robust than a lot would expect. So I'm just curious, what what are your thoughts right now on employment? Well, I think this is another manifestation of that expectations creating the reality that I talked about at the beginning. Um, at the same time, uh, expectations on the part of lenders that they're borrowers would be able to pay them back as rates came down, um, you know, enable them to continue to shovel money at them basically and sustain these sort of feeble enterprises. Uh, corporations acted the same way. So they basically operated on the assumption that you're going to see the Fed pivot and the economy is going to avert a hard landing. Therefore, why would I lay off all these people who I struggled so desperately to hire after uh, COVID um, when I know that this is just a short-term bump in the road, and then once the Fed cuts rates, we'll be back off to the races. So I'd rather suffer through this period holding more employment inventory, let's say, yep. than I normally would like to have, um, just because I, I know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So if that assumption gets challenged, I think you could see a very dramatic and immediate reduction in employment. And that's what I've been waiting for for a while was that this realization that, hey, that I thought I actually believed the Fed when they said higher for longer. And so yeah. I thought, you know, Wall Street spent all year going like this. No, we're right. not listening to you. And they kept saying it and saying it and saying it. And then lo and behold, Powell caved. I don't know why I should be shocked because it's not the first time he's done that where he said, no, higher for longer. And then the next day decided... He's, you know, going to pivot. Um, but uh, so fooey on me for actually believing what he said. Um, but, you know, if they do actually do that, um, it it will shape the uh, employment picture dramatically because they're sitting there with surplus labor inventory um, that they would shed, I would think, rapidly if there was a perception that the landscape was not going to be uh, you know, pivot immediately. All right. So two things. One, just to level set, do you agree with me that that would be a game on mo moment in terms of, you know, all the, all, all the threats to the economy, all of a sudden maybe get a, a chance to, to start coming in through the door? You mean if employment were to turn the employment market? Yes. Yes. Yeah. If, 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 if that, you know, bet that the, the faith that the corporate fleet has right now that look, yeah. we're going to hold on to our human capital right now because this is going to be a transitory right. period and 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 then we'll get be back in salad days and we'll have the right people. If they start saying, oh wait, that's not going to happen and they start shedding jobs, does that finally open the door to all those issues that we've been worried about? It's hard to imagine. It wouldn't. Uh, you would definitely think so. The other thing alongside it though would be corporate profits. Um, you know, right. whether one can lead the other. So right. normally corporate profits, if they start to decline, will lead to the headcount. Right. 
And we didn't see that last year. We actually had the profits recession without the labor recession. So maybe that will come as a cons, you know, down the road when they realize, hey, we actually are going to go to a double dips profit recession. We're going to let go of these workers. Um, but the other way around is you could have profit growth and this labor shedding that ultimately creates the profits recession because suddenly your consumers are out of work and therefore they're not buying stuff. And then, right. Know. And if it leads that way, we might see profit growth initially, right? Oh, we've reduced our headcount. So therefore our profits are higher, but right. then the drop in consumer spending catches up, right? So the reason where, where I'm going with all this is, okay, so let's say the Fed actually delivers on what it is guiding the markets, right? We're going to do three rate cuts in 2024, mm -hmm. right? You're bringing the federal funds rate, right? Or the discount rate down from what? Five and a quarter to four and a half. Right. Right. That's still pretty elevated. Yeah. Right. So my point is, is like, can the Fed's rate cuts, can they ride to the rescue in time to rescue the corporate America fleet from all the, the maturity while re-rating? Can it ride to the housing market's rescue in time? Right. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe mortgage rates come down into the mid to higher fives. Right. This is still really expensive mortgages to what people were used to just two years prior, right? So, like, are we throwing a party on on somewhat false assumptions here? Yeah, this is why I said I think at the at the very top that it depends on whether the Fed goes soon enough and aggressively enough, because as you outlined, you know, if you were a junk rated borrower borrowing at four and your rates went to eight and now they're going to go to six, you're still screwed. You know, it's still right. a massive increase in your debt service. And as I mentioned earlier, um, consumer debt relative to income is back to where it was in the global financial crisis. I mean, I remember just months ago, people pointing to that at, you know, at low levels saying, look, this increase in interest rates isn't an issue for the consumer because their debt service is still relative, so low relative to income. And they, it's like, give it a minute. Where do you think all these rate hikes are going to be manifest? In in the blink of an eye, it, it went parabolic, um, just like the rate, the Fed funds rate did. So I think that um, if the Fed definitely has to move with alacrity um, and aggressively if it's going to stave off the, the corporate uh, default cycle, um, which is already underway. Um, but then again, you get into this kind of issue of the expectations feeding the reality because, all right, let's say um, they don't cut in March, but if the markets believe, well, that just means they're definitely going to cut in April, it can sustain itself. I mean, the question is how long can the market hope sustain the uh, that whole construct uh, without actual rate hikes being delivered. And I don't know how long that can go. I would say, uh, frankly, it surprised me that it's been able to hold up this as long. long. Has, yeah. And in the face of, as I mentioned, you know, the highest bankruptcies since uh, the Great Recession, other than COVID. And again, you know, credit card delinquencies, subprime auto loan delinquencies, I think are the all-time record high. Um, so there's a lot of bad news out there that the markets have completely ignored on the assumption that this pivot is coming and they've ignored it for the better part of 12 months. Um, and 
you know, it was a good year generally, not just for stocks, but for credit. So, you know, I, I guess I have no idea how long they can uh, sustain this on hope, but I would say every day that the Fed doesn't deliver and if it doesn't deliver aggressively, it could be catastrophic for the markets just because they've now, you know, their expectations are so far afield of the fundamentals. I mean, just getting back to what's actually going on in the economy. Um, when you look at the data, I know you mentioned Wolf Richter felt like, you know, it's hard to forecast a recession. When I look at the data, it's hard to believe that we're not already in a recession. You know, <laughs> when you look at things like the leading indicator down, what? It, it depends months. what you look at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of I leading mean, indicators, the inverted yield curves. I mean, just all sorts of tried and right. true recession GDI indicators. GDI versus GDP. We've never seen a gap. Like there's so many unprecedented data points like GDI. We've never seen it go negative when GDP was positive before, uh, except when you were in recession. But even during recessions, it's never been this dramatically diverged ever right. in history. So, I mean, there are just so many indicators out there. Then you look at, as I mentioned, real retail sales have gone nowhere for over a year. That's never been the case unless you've been mired in not just a medium recession, a deep, meaningful recession like 90 or 2008. So there are a lot of indicators out there that suggest we should be deep in a recession right now. And if the markets are that far afield from the reality, if the Fed doesn't deliver and deliver soon, we, you know, we could get a reckoning of, you know, epic proportion. The problem, the other moving part in all this though, that leaves me even more gun shy is it's an election year. Mm -hmm. And you just can't be too cynical about the amount of effort that will be brought to bear to make sure that what we're talking about does not happen. Um, you know, I uh, have spoken to two people who are politically connected who were telling me over a month ago that the Biden administration rhetoric notwithstanding was pushing hard for energy producers to get out there and just pump as much pump, drill, get as much production as you can. Um, to to lower the price of oil. Yeah. And you see it in the numbers. You see the production, domestic production, I think is an all-time record. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they want oil prices lower. Um, so, the, and then who knows what happens with on the fiscal front. Um, and then with the Fed suddenly doing a pivot. So it's, it's a really uncertain year. Um, and that's why I guess I feel, you know, there's very little one can say with great certainty and confidence. And the one thing that I think I can say with confidence is that the dollar is going to pay the price for whatever policy sins we commit this year. That, that's going to be the relief valve. That's the yeah. thing that's going to be sacrificed in order of continued stability. Um, all right. Uh, well, in beginning to wrap up here, Stephanie, and again, I could, I could go on forever. Um, and I know I'm going to get a ton of comments saying, Adam, why didn't you keep going? No, uh, I think they're going to be like, why didn't you stop half an hour ago? Not at all. I can guarantee you that's not going to happen. Uh -huh. um, are there any indicators that you follow closely that we haven't talked about yet that you think are going to be important ones to watch this year? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to be watching that Baltic Freight Index for the shipping 
what's happening what's with, going on in the red sea yeah in in shipping rates in general because i think that's going to be important and obviously drives a lot of the input inflation side um and you know i'll be looking at things like the indeed uh, weekly job postings to see what's going on on that front i mean we've definitely seen a slowdown in in hiring in general in the payroll numbers and in you know like the indeed measure is definitely rolled over but i'd look to see if that starts to accelerate um to the downside or not um and you know obviously um I'm going to be watching the consumer spending and and really parsing out uh, what of that is is units versus price, and if we're seeing any kind of shifts there, um, and continue to keep an eye on, you know, the global movements in and out of the dollar. Those will be sort of my main focus this year, uh, but. You know, and on the credit front, obviously, I've been watching all the corporate the corporate right. downgrades. We had the largest number of downgrades last year since the global financial crisis, other than COVID. Um, so, you know, like I said, all the credit metrics are there, flashing red. But when you look at the Bloomberg screen, they're right. all flashing green. So, <laughs> well, well, and one key one that is not flashing red that I know you watch very closely are credit spreads. That's and what I mean. So- yeah, the, the actual credit quality is flashing red, but the market measures of risk appetite are all flashing green. So credit spreads, yeah. All right. Well, Stephanie, um, if on any of those key indicators throughout the year you start seeing them move in ways that really catch your attention and influence your outlook of where things are headed, you just have an open invitation to come on <laughs> this channel anytime and let let folks know. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to squeeze one or two more questions in before I wrap things up, if that's okay with you. Um, just because they're so interesting, and I, I really want to hear your thoughts on them. And of course, one is your 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 market outlook. We 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 haven't even gotten to the big question yet, which is just what do you what do you think the markets are going to do this coming year? We I know you think they're going to be pretty good for gold, but I'm curious any other assets. But before we get there, um, uh. All right, so we, we we talked about this sort of culture of moral hazard, right? There's a number of things I'd like to talk with you about in more depth that we're not going to be able to do here, but let me just sort of mention them briefly. Um, one is that um, I, I sort of call this the, the, the transition from meritocracy to aristocracy, mm-hmm. where the, I, I think we're getting to the point where it's legitimate to ask the question, is the American dream really only available these days to those who were born rich, right? Where there, there's this huge wealth divide. Um, we are hollowing out the the the, the basically that you know the, the job system through cost cutting measures like offshoring, but but also automation and now AI, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's getting increasingly we're, we're just we're removing those entry level jobs. Right, we've we've given companies, you know, all sorts of incentives for a very long time, um, as we've made it more and more expensive to employ human capital. But we've made it easier for them to replace that human capital, especially on the lower skill level. Right, so the on ramp for younger generations to build skills and and create marketable skills, um, that that's those rungs of the ladder are getting removed. Right, um, so for for this whole host of reasons. Um, you know, I, I think we're we're at risk of of 
kind of building a bifurcated society here where you have a very few doing very well and everybody else who's seeing their prospects of dimin as diminished and probably increasingly entering jobs that are in service of that that top elite, right? Um, this is the discussion that you and I could have for a long time, so it's unfair for me to ask you to opine too much on that with just a couple of minutes. But, but the question I wanted to kind of get to through those questions and a few others I won't mention here, which is, Stephanie, if I made you Empress of America, <laughs> what what reforms would you want to prioritize first? Oh my gosh. Wow. That is a question. I know. Yeah. Um, well, I think one thing that I would try to do immediately is just sweeping deregulation, because I think one of the things that stands in the way of a lot of, uh, economic entrepreneurship and vitality and, and feeding that capitalist spirit is just the tremendous amount of bureaucracy that's imposed on people trying to get started in business. And, and the other side would be taxes along with it. I mean, I think to have, um, you know, lower corporate taxes and less regulation would help revitalize a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit and give people greater opportunity there. Um, and I don't know if there's a way that you could also um, incentivize trade schools, because one thing we're learning right now from example, you know, for example, look at uh, how tarnished Harvard has become. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, a lot of these jobs, you know, people pay tons of money to go and get a degree at one of these schools, and then they're saddled with student debt, and they don't really have much job opportunity because a lot of these jobs, as you said, are being are either already occupied or they're going to be outsourced by AI or abroad or whatnot, um, maybe somehow come up with uh, uh, some incentive or promotions for going to trade schools and sort of bringing that back. I know that that's generally frowned upon as being lesser than, but I, I don't think so. I think that that would help, you know, restore a sense of pride um, in workmanship, et cetera. Um, well, in a sense of, of value creation uh, in, in the economy versus a lot of the paper degrees that a lot of these, you know, quote unquote, respectable colleges pump out. One of the reasons why they're graduates trouble finding out. You talk about paper degrees. We've created a culture where our entire economy is basically there to create paper assets you know a lot of it is just yeah. we or not even paper it's just to push push digits from one side to the other yeah. i mean we stopped creating things and we've now gone into the production of paper and and digits as you say um and that's all very elegant and sophisticated um but i'm not sure especially in the world of ai um that that's necessarily a sustainable uh, economic model for us. And, and given the amount of debt that we've incurred in the process of doing that, um, I think maybe getting back to some simpler things might not be the worst thing in the world. Um, and again, you know, I, I don't know, but I would think that if you're building something that you can actually point to uh, and provides some purpose, physical purpose, that that might give you a sense of pride in yourself and in your country and in your job and you know that kind of thing i mean it may sound a little um uh hokey but i think that that actually is a powerful thing that might be worth getting back to 
I, I, I don't at all. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work that Mike Rowe does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm yeah, I'm a huge fan, fan, so. fan, huge fan of his, huge fan yeah. of the Mike Rowe Foundation. Um, just for folks watching, I have reached out to his organization multiple times and been politely declined <laughs> so far, but I will keep knocking on that door. He's definitely an interview I would love to land on this channel to talk about this exact topic. Stephanie. So, all right. Uh, look, will you get my vote for Empress then? Um, <laughs> hey, real quick, um, just to make sure folks really fully understand, um, uh, one of the reasons why you're pushing for less regulation and, and lower taxes is not because you're like, oh, I want companies to make all the money and, you know, overlord it over the populace. It is, I believe, you, you, you feel that we have sort of metastasized uh, true capitalism and it's now become this sort of uh you know cartel capitalism where it's actually pretty hard to find an industry that isn't dominated by a cartel of a small number of, of companies that have then written you know worked with dc to, to write protective regulations around them like a yeah. regulatory moat that make it very hard for competitors to dislodge them right you're not yeah, I mean, it's a much more articulate way of seeing what i was no, not, not at all but yeah but in addition to what it does in terms of the structure of the corporate sector, it also has implications for the the structure, geez, I can't even speak anymore, of Washington, D.C. We have all of these bureaucratic agencies that exist simply to regulate all of these industries and to sit there and ride their asses, basically, to make sure that they're uh, living up to these regulations. I mean, we could cut out a, an enormous amount of fat there that's both encumbering uh, our debt and deficit, but also encumbering our economy by strangling, you know, potential entrepreneurs with this kind of unnecessary red tape. I mean, some of it, obviously, you need regulation, but there we've jumped the shark on that. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> well, I, I, I think a good analogy is... Um, you know, love him or hate him. Um, I think Elon Musk really um, shook a lot of corporate America, or at least big tech, to to to, to its core when he fired basically seventy five percent of the staff of Twitter. And here we are, a year later, and the company is still, you know, it's still a going concern, right? Um, he just really showed, he redefined what an essential employee is, and he really shined a bright light on just the bloat and the fat uh, that. Uh, at least, you know, big tech um, has been guilty of accreting over time. I think very similar analogy to, to government, right? And we could probably yeah. get rid of get rid of seventy five percent of the regulations, the laws, and the legislators, um, and just get down to the core ones that really matter. We probably wouldn't even notice it and probably run a lot better, right? Yeah. Well, and get rid of all the lobbyists and, you know, the whole structure that is so corrupt now. Corrupt, yeah. And like you said, it really inures to the benefit of just a handful of major corporations and big industries that hold all the power. Um, you know, we need to get back to a real capitalistic system, which this is not. I, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I'll just mention this because it's interesting. I'll keep this really brief, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, there was a great podcast that I think it was This American Life did, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. But it was it was trying to understand how lobbying works. And what they what they their investigation revealed, it was the opposite of what you would expect, where we expect that in the halls of of power in DC, you know, the the 
mild-mannered, unassuming politicians are walking around and there are these lobbyists with big bags of money that that pounce on them and try to you know influence their votes. It's totally the other way around. Yeah. It's the lobbyists that get hounded by the politicians who want their money, right? And when you really understand how much of a of a senator's day or representative's day is spent dialing for dollars versus legislating, it's ridiculous, right? Um, so the whole system is is you know definitely in need of a big enema, and well, that's that's a discussion. Yes, <laughs> I don't know if there is an enema big enough to <laughs> to get there. All right, that's... so. Um, I, I've thrown way too much in, in, in the mix here, but uh, trying to end here on your market outlook, um, what type of year do you expect given this kind of uncertainty and, and limbo status that we've been talking about? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. I wish I I had a crystal ball and I could tell you uh, with certainty what I expected. Um, so my the, obviously the one thing that I, I did say I feel certain about is the dollar down and gold yep. up. Um, and I think treasuries will probably have a good year. Um, but, uh, outside of that, I would, I mean, the layup is volatility, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think we could expect much more volatility in the markets, um, because for the reasons we talked about, um, it's not clear how soon the fed is going to be able to move given the inflation backdrop. Um, and then how aggressively they'll be able to move once they get started and whether that'll be enough to support the markets. But I think the markets, have a very clear expectation about what the Fed's going to do. And they're, they have 100% certainty. And whenever the markets perceive something as being, you know, this is, they're going to cut here and then there and then there, um, there's a lot of room for disappointment. And that disappointment will certainly be manifest in, in increased volatility. So I, I think that would be just the no brainer answer to that question. Um, as to whether that means you end the year with lower stocks and wider credit spreads, that would be my my best guess. But you know, I'm I'm certainly humble enough to say I really just can't forecast right now uh, how this year is going to shape out. And again, the fact that it's an election year throws a giant wrench right. into the whole <laughs> analysis. All right. Well, as I said earlier, Stephanie, you are welcome to come on the program anytime <laughs> to update us uh, as the the tape changes in ways that that catch your attention. Um, <clears throat> just a note too that um, volatility. I, I just interviewed Jim Carson, and and volatility is something that he specializes in, and and like you, um, he sees it playing a much bigger role in twenty twenty four than it has in the past two years, um, mm -hmm. particularly because it's been so compressed. Yeah. Um, by forces that he and I discussed in that interview. And folks, I'll tell you in a second how to listen to that interview if you maybe want to listen to it after this one. So you know, one, thing yeah. that, one last thing that kind of plays into that increased volatility that we didn't talk about at all, and I'll just throw it out there, is the Bank of Japan and what they do this year. We're also focused on the Fed. But mm -hmm. the Bank of Japan, um, you know, if they actually do start to undertake a tightening cycle, would be a tectonic shift in the global financial plates um, that would have repercussions here. So that's just another one to keep an eye on. Oh my goodness. All right. <laughs> Let's flag that as one to get into the next time you come on. Right. Here. No, it's way too much to talk about here. Okay. But I, I appreciate you putting it on the board. Um, all right. Well, look, as we wrap up here, um, I've got um, two questions I'm going to ask you here. Um, the, the, the latter one, which is I'm going to ask you about in about a minute is we've been talking all about money and financial investing through this interview. Um, I've been asking 
my experts recently, if there's any sort of non-money related investment that they would encourage people to consider adopting in their lives. So I'll, I'll ask you that in just a second. Much more important question though, before I do, which is um, for people that have really enjoyed this conversation, Stephanie, and would like to follow you and your work from here, where should they go? Well, they can go to macromavens.com and you can pull up some old reports there and see some media stuff and uh, find some information on how to subscribe. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter, although I'm not a particularly religious tweeter. Can they say or Xer? What's the term now? I, I you know <laughs> I just stick with Twitter. I, I haven't I haven't moved on to the X brand yet. Yeah. So I'm uh, at S Pomboy there, except no substitutes. There are plenty of imposters out there. I don't know why anyone would try to impersonate anybody, much less me. But uh, apparently they do. So um, at S Pomboy. All right. Well, Stephanie, when I edit this, I will put up the links to your website and your Twitter handle right there on the screen so folks know exactly where to go. Folks, I'll have the links in the description below the video, too. Um, uh, you know, two things on Twitter. Um, one, just to Stephanie's point there about imposters. Um, if you ever get contacted by somebody over social media, by Stephanie or by me, and they are trying to solicit you for anything. It's not us. It's right. scammers. And there was a scourge of scammers on social media. I, I really am hoping all the major social media platforms up level their anti-scammer or spammer uh, defenses this year because it's just such a nightmare, as you know, Stephanie, having to explain yeah. to people, no, it's not me trying to sell you that crypto product, right? Yeah, yes, it's <laughs> definitely not me in that case. Yeah. Um, I'll also just make a quick comment here too, Stephanie, because I, I, I think I told you about this once, but you know, I'm, I'm a very goal oriented person. And so in trying to grow my Twitter audience, you know, what I do is I, I achieve a milestone and I say, okay, great. Who, who's somebody who has more people than me. And then let me try to work to get more than them. And I was kind of picking off all these different, you know, personalities on Twitter for the, you know, since I started my account, well, about middle of next last year, um, I started getting close to you. So you were the rabbit that I was chasing. Oh my gosh. Right? Well, you've and certainly passed me by now. No, no. As of today, we have five finally caught up to you, but it has been oh. a six month <laughs> painful journey. And because oh I got God. within like a couple hundred followers of you. And then our good friend, Grant Williams said, Hey everybody, you really got to be following Stephanie. If you haven't followed her, you know, you should go follow her. So go. overnight you jumped by like several thousand more people ahead of me. No. So I was like, Oh gosh, all right. Well, I'm going <laughs> to work even harder now. And I got back up close to you. Well, and then you started going on Tucker Carlson and you started oh, jumping up after every appearance. So it has been a long slog trying to reel you in, but we were finally neck and neck here. And anyway, well, great competitor. All I can say, Adam, is that I'd much prefer to be racing you on Twitter than on a sidewalk because <laughs> you would have oh. blown by me uh, ten years ago for sure. Well, <laughs> in, until until you you know brought us into a Pilates studio, and then I would have cracked in half, given how inflexible I, I, I am. That. Yeah, I doubt um, that. But anyways, you know, and and just to to make it clear for folks, <clears throat> what's been the most painful part about catching Stephanie on Twitter is that I work really hard at it. And she tweets only occasionally and only when she's got something important to say. And the fact that uh, I probably put about 100 times more effort into it th than you and yet took me so long to catch up to you just shows how much wow. better at this than I you are. No, I think it shows that I really need to put more effort into my Twitter. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh if you ever God. do, you're going to leave me in the dust. No, I'm sure I won't. <laughs>
All right. Well, a couple of quick housekeeping things before the last question. Um, one, folks, if you've enjoyed this conversation with Stephanie and would like to let her know you'd love to have her come back on the program anytime she wants, please let her know by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, and just a reminder for folks, too, um, that uh, I on my Substack, which is still relatively new, I put out updates almost every day about the goings on here at, um, at Thoughtful Money. Um, but I also have resumed my my Adams notes, which are my Cliff Notes detailed summaries. <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of these interviews. Um, so if you want to start getting those, including my notes to this interview with Stephanie, um, then go to my Substack and uh, sign up for the premium version there. And my Substack's just at adamtaggart.substack.com. Um, I also want to remind folks too that the, the thoughtful money. Uh, is doing its first uh, conference uh, that's going to be this March. And uh, Stephanie has kindly agreed, um, as she has appeared in, in my past conferences, um, to uh, be a participant this time around as well. She's always a fan favorite for reasons, folks, that should be abundantly clear here now at the end of this discussion. So Stephanie, just want to say thanks for, for being willing to appear in that. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Um, and then here we are now finally at the last question, which is, um, in addition to all the financial stuff we just talked about, what's a non-money related investment you encourage folks to consider? Um, well, it's not a an investment into a thing. It would be an investment of time. Uh, if I can use that as my investment, um, I feel like it's so important to invest in time with people that you get great uh, soul satisfaction from being with, you know, just taking time to be with friends. I have a friend that we walk our dogs together in the afternoons and that, you know, hour just strolling around with our dogs is just something I so look forward to. And it, it, that kind of thing just brings joy. Um, and if you do that on a regular basis and you make time for those kind of things, it really, it's what matters in life. I feel like, you know, all the rest of this stuff is intellectually stimulating and hopefully financially rewarding if you can get it right, but nothing fills your soul and is as healthy, I think, um, as spending time with people you really love and and making sure that you commit the time to do that. All right, very well said. <laughs> uh, I, I've talked a fair amount in this program about kind of the supremacy of relationships really when it comes to wealth, because that's yeah, I've said probably now ad nauseum, um, you know, when they interview people who live to be 100, um, that's the number one thing they always say is the quality of their relationships. It's because we're social creatures, right? We're, yeah. we're tribal social animals. Um, so I won't I won't pile on to the comments I've made in the past on this. I do want to pile on to one part of what you said, Stephanie, which is you went for a walk, you go for a walk with your dogs. Um Time with the people you care about, super important. Time with dogs is really important. And and um, I don't know if you wrote read the book Sapiens that came out a couple of years ago, no. Stephanie. Uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. Um, it, it basically is a chronicling of the human species from literally when Homo sapiens evolved from the other proto forms of man um, and, and follows um, them through... Uh, like the prehistoric times, then the agricultural age, and then the, the technology age. But one of the things I took away from the book was um, the first animal to be domesticated by humans was dogs, hmm. which kind of surprised me because I figured it would have been something that we could have eaten, right? Like a chicken or, right, a cat right, or, yeah. or whatever. Right? <clears throat> but it was dogs. And it was because dogs were, were 
attracted to our garbage piles and they were scavenging from there and we ended up creating a, a relationship with them. But the other thing that's really interesting is the gap between when we domesticated the dog, between when we domesticated the next animal. And I, I'm doing this from memory, so it's probably not exact, but I think it was like maybe 20,000 years ago we domesticated the dog. It wasn't until like, it was like another 10,000 or, or more wow. years before we domesticated the second animal. And then we started domesticating a bunch, right? But the point is, is dogs have been in the human experience longer than any other animal to the point where I think we have kind of co-evolved together. And so just the the emotional fulfillment yeah. you get from that human dog relationship, I do think is different than any other animal. And I'm, I'm not slamming on you if you like your cat or your goldfish or your parrot right. or whatever, but there really is something special about dogs and humans. I think that's so true. I guess it's an ancestral uh, kinship, it sounds like, but um, you don't have to persuade me. I could have gone on for hours about the importance of spending time with your dog, but people already know I'm <laughs> obsessed with my dog. So I don't- Well, Wilhelmina is a celebrity in herself. Oh my gosh. You know, the one thing I would say though, in addition to it being important to invest the time with people that you enjoy spending time with and you love and spending the time with your dogs, it's equally important to disinvest from people who don't fill your soul Yes. Um, who don't bring positivity into your life. I think that's just as important as finding people who do, because if you surround yourself with people who are negative and bring you down, it's impossible to avoid being, you know, impacted by that. So I, I, I don't know, maybe that's something that comes with getting older where you feel like it's okay to have less friends who are really good friends and not to have, you know, 30 people, 20 of whom, you don't really enjoy right. spending time with superficial them. <laughs> yeah. or exactly. Yeah. They're, they're not, they're not adding to you. Um, yeah. So my wife is a, a therapist, as you know, Stephanie, and um, there, there is a theory. Um, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it, essentially it's sort of like you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Huh. So it's all about trying to really be selective and picking the people whom yeah. you spend the majority of your time with to make sure that, that they are always pulling you up. Yep. to the group average, right? Yep. Um, I'm blessed in that regard. So I, I'm a happy girl. <laughs> what just not, it sounds like you're choosing well, right? Yeah. And of course, you're somebody who, you know, I think a lot of people would love to have in their five circles because I think you're oh, somebody well, that pulls sweet. people up. I don't know. <laughs> uh, very true. Um, but anyway, well, thank you so much, Adam. Uh, it's a pleasure to get to spend this time with you always. And I hope I made some sense although i'm incredibly as you can tell um confused and uh befuddled about where we're going this year so i'm just trying my best to put the pieces together well steph it's always a pleasure and i appreciate you being so transparent because i think a lot of people are seeing themselves in you here by saying look you know i'm confused by a lot of things that are going on here a lot of stuff's happening that i didn't expect or i see the data going one way but reality going another so I appreciate your your generosity and courage to say, <laughs> hey, there are some things here that I'm scratching my head about. Yeah. Um, all right, Steph, it's always, um, I, I, I don't think I'm going to insult anybody by saying this, that you're always my favorite person to interview here. Oh, well, thank I you for giving that, us so much time. <laughs> no, looking forward to lots of great discussions with you in 2024. Stephanie, thanks so much. Thank you, Adam. All right. Well, now is the time on the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the financial advisory firms endorsed by Thoughtful Money. I'm joined as usual by lead partners, John Lodra and Mike Preston. Mike was off last week. So Mike, now that you're back, why don't we start with you? 
Um, anything you want to respond to from this pretty, as usual, phenomenal discussion with Stephanie? I love the discussion with Stephanie, Adam. Thanks so much. And essentially, you know, she was humbled. She started off by saying that she was humbled. I mean, my goodness, the S&P 500 was up 24%, roughly, in 2023. Who would have expected that? She talked about bank failures, uh, you know, that happened early in the year. We saw a continuation of the bond market collapse and rising yields. The 10-year yield touched 5%. And so, you know, a lot of things were going on. And the, the, and the fundamentals continue to be very negative. And we have valuations that continue to, to remain in the stratosphere. It's like this permanently high plateau that just won't ever be allowed to correct. And I know there's some disagreement about what fundamentals to use, but we've looked at a whole bunch of different ones. And we think we're looking at the right ones. We think we're looking at valuation fundamentals that are highly correlated to what's likely to happen over the long term. The surprising thing is that the Fed and other central banks have created this money printing magic that's just lasted so long, 15 years, 15 long years of not knowing exactly what's what and what's real anymore because we're so disconnected from fundamentals. But Stephanie said that she's been humbled. Well, I, I can tell you we've been humbled too. And we don't look at just calendar years. We've been humbled the last several years at just how long this has gone on. You know, but she talks about expectations have been really high. Expectations have been really high for Fed pivot, soft landing, that type of thing. And when Chairman Powell a couple months ago talked about potentially easing and maybe three um, rate cuts in 2024, the market took off and it's been in a pretty straight line. And perhaps we'll share some charts later that show why we became concerned about another trip to the highs a couple months ago. And we took some actions to prepare for that. Now we sit just short of all-time highs on the S&P. It's likely that we make new highs, even with these bad fundamentals. We we don't know. Um, but we'll talk a little more about the details there a little bit later. But when you ask Stephanie, how do you react to all of this? She basically said, cash on the sidelines is how I react to this. You know, that's that's pretty much what we think as well, although we're not 100% in cash, obviously. We're over 40% in treasury bills still, and some of the pieces that we have in our puzzle or in our model have been working quite well, which gave us positive performance last year. We, we, gold is testing its all-time high. Gold mining stocks are lagging, but we think that's going to change. And some of the specific sectors that we have picked have been working out. So Stephanie says she believes this year we'll see the dollar go higher over the year and gold go higher. I think Actually, in the very... Be, to, just, just to correct, she, she thinks oh. the dollar is going to go lower over the year. Thank you for correcting me, Adam. I was just going to say that we disagree on the dollar, and I had that reverse. She thinks the dollar will go lower on the year and, and gold higher. We actually think the dollar will go higher and gold will go higher. I would say that ours is more a short-term call. I think that we agree with Stephanie over the long term. The dollar will likely be lower, but we think that's probably you know, maybe even two years out, one to two years out. In the near term, particularly if we see the kind of economic crisis or collapse in the stock market that we expect, could happen even this year, the dollar is likely to go higher in the very short term. And, and thus we have a long position in the dollar. And of course, we're we're big bulls in gold. So towards the end of the conversation, she talked a little bit about um, the BRICS summit. I learned from her that the BRICS summit this summer is in Russia. Last year it was in South Africa. Maybe the fact that it's in, in Russia will mean that bigger news will be released about 
a potential competitor to the dollar. I I don't know. I view a potential BRICS currency as a long-term negative for the U.S. dollar, not necessarily a short one. As she pointed out, Russia and China are already trading with each other in alternate currencies outside of the United States dollar. So lastly, she said that there's going to be a lot of volatility. If she's sure about one thing, there's going to be a lot of volatility, that we're in no man's land here, and that she called it a cop-out that she's sitting in cash. I don't think it's a cop-out at all. I think it's um, a sign of humility that you know cash is paying 5%, at least for now. And, and valuations are stretched beyond all imagination. And whether we go higher into another bubble and collapse or collapse from here, we know from fundamentals, this market will be a lot lower at some point. So, you know, I think I'm really impressed with her directness and humility in that. And overall, a very enjoyable conversation. All right. Um, a very enjoyable conversation. Um, I, it's just an understatement when you talk to Stephanie. It's because it's just such a pleasure. Um, Joan, why don't we... Um, why don't we let you chime in on anything you want to add to what Mike said there? And, you know, Mike talked about how, uh, you know, your strategies, uh, you know, resulted in a, in a positive return for you guys last year. If you if you could talk a little bit about how New Harbor performed in 2023. Yeah, great to be with you again, Adam. And hello, everybody uh, in this new year. Thank you for tuning in. Um, as I said last week with, with our chat, uh, my chat with you, Adam, we, we too were humbled and, and uh uh, we were probably uh, very much in the camp, uh, like many folks were a year ago, calling for a, pr a pretty high likelihood of, of recession. Interestingly, you look now, that same survey has almost nobody calling for a recession. So so if you want to talk about contrarian data points, we're not going to go out on a limb here and, and say, hey, recession, yes or no. In fact, we don't even think that's the right question to ask. Um, but that very data might be an interesting contrarian signal. But yeah, we did have a um, successfully positive last year. We're we're uh, we're not the kind of folks that take victory laps. Certainly not on a give on a single year, because our clients don't retire for one year. They retire for 20, 30, 40 years, hopefully. And and I think as much as last year being a you know amazingly strong market on the headlines, uh, I think it's really important to to remind what last year was in follow up to a, a very poor 2022. And maybe by way of, of sharing that, I'll just share a chart of the uh, S&P 500 to kind of pull that into context. If you can enable screen sharing, Adam. But in many ways, last year was basically digging out of, of losses of 2022. And in fact, maybe no better poster child than Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF. That's That was up about 60 some odd percent last year. But it was down about 60% the year before, 2022. Now, most folks would be tempted to say a negative 60% followed by a positive 60%. Wow, we're back to even. But that's not how compounding returns work. In fact, even after that 60-ish percent return last year, the ARC fund is still down about 40%, give or take, over that two-year period. That's how unkind uh, have suffering large, large drawdowns is. So let me share a, a screen of the S&P 500 just to kind of put things in context. So this is a daily chart going back a few years of the S&P. Here's the prior high, January 3rd of 2022. The, the closing high was um, 47.96. We were three points away from that last week uh, during the holiday week between Christmas and New Year's. We've since turned down pretty sharply here in the short term. Um, so you basically see we the, the, the market went on a, a long, very interesting and scary trip to nowhere over the last couple of years. 
last year, just focusing on 2023, um, and I'm going to speak in generalities. Uh, this is not a statement about every one of our clients, but but on average, our typical client um, who who's in our flagship portfolio uh, had had positive returns of about uh, between five and six percent um, net of our fees. If if not for our fees, they would have been up a little higher, of course. And um, just as important as as we're happy that um, that they had some positive returns. The volatility was far less in, in our approach by design, the way we hedge and the way we're keeping lots of dry powder. We I estimate, for example, the even a 60-40 portfolio, typical portfolio that, that most um, folks might get from a traditional firm in the July through uh, October drawdown last year was probably about a 9% drawdown. Uh, our clients saw maybe a three to three and a half, maybe 4% drawdown at the same time. So over the last couple of years, um, you know, our clients are up about three percent, three and a half percent net of fees. Whereas even a 60-40 portfolio was down about one percent or so over the last couple of years. So we don't, we're not going to take any victory laps. Certainly not in any single year. But uh, we're happy that, uh, despite a very challenging and uh, uh, perplexing couple of years, um, our approach so far has 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 done quite well and uh, but we're looking forward it doesn't matter the past it's all about forward from here while i'm on this chart of the s&p i did want to point out we did um just recently we do have some we're, we're about 40 percent give or take in equities right now much of which we have hedged and about 15 percent or, or nearly half of that we have hedged in uh put options on the s&p we took the opportunity with the recent strength to, to move those put options up so that they have a strike price of 5500 on the s&p so that's about a 4% uh, below current levels. So the way to think about that is those hedges have about a 4% insurance deductible, if you will, before they kick in. But beyond that, if we do get some follow through to the downside, um, we're very comfortable that the the, the hedges we have will, will stem some of that downside. Make no mistake about it, a lot of our short-term indicators are, are favorable. I, I hesitate to call them bullish because bullish uh, portrays Hey, the, there's nothing but higher prices ahead. They're favorable, uh, but there's also some things that are unfavorable. Very stretched, very overbought in the near term. Um, things like the percent of stocks above in the S and P above their 50-day moving average. Uh, it's like over 90%. It rarely does it get there, and when it does, it's a mixed bag in terms of uh, follow-through returns. But um, you know, we're uh, we're positioned the way we think we should be, given the 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 stew of of, of things on the table. John, okay. let me just say one thing quickly, Adam. I, I think you misspoke by accident. You said the strike price was fifty five hundred. Um, oh, yeah. It's forty five hundred, just for the viewers. Uh, it's easy to do, uh, but we but the line is correct at forty five hundred. We are hedged out to March in the uh, up at up at forty five hundred with our current puts. All right. Thanks for mentioning that, Mike. That was actually here in my notes. So you yeah. you uh, and I'll also add in our, our bullish position of the dollar. It's through long call options. So effectively, what that is is it's being long the dollar, but it has a put option basically built in to to that trade. So that if the dollar does weaken significantly, we're 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 basically hedged on the downside. Yeah, and so I appreciate you walking through that, John, um, to underscore. A couple of things, you know, one is your guys' approach there at New Harbor. One of the adjectives I use most often when I describe your firm and your services is risk management. Um, that you guys are are uh, really always sort of first and foremost saying, okay, how, how do we start from a position where we're really minimizing the potential for loss? 
And then when we feel good about that, how do we get some prudent gain on top of that, right? So for people, especially people who are later in life, like you said, John, people don't retire for a year. Hopefully they retire for decades. Um, you're, you're being, you know, as conscientiously conservative, you know, with preserving their, their uh, capital as you can be. Um, and Stephanie, as she looked into the, the coming year, right, she said, look, I, I don't, there's a lot I don't know. Um, and therefore, I, I think volatility is going to be a big part of, you know, what happens in 2024, right? So it, it's strategies like the kind that you guys employ are ones that are basically adding defensive shielding around portfolios when it comes to volatility, right? So that if you're you're, you're caught off sides by the trades you've made, right? You guys have put the type of insurance in place that is, you know, not going to completely remove downside risk, but it's going to hopefully heavily mitigated, you know, in those areas where you've got that that insurance protection in place. You're nodding as I'm saying this, John. Yeah, that's that's spot on, Adam. That's the way we see it. All right. Um, so, anyways, just want to underscore if you if you you know if, if Stephanie sounded compelling to you, you know, finding defensive risk management strategies that help defend against volatility. Good way to go. Um, all right, boys, uh, just in wrapping up here, got to keep this section short this week, simply because we went so long with Stephanie, which is always such a good thing. Um, Mike, maybe I'll let you wrap up here by talking about anything else you want to, but but specifically, that maybe you want to talk about gold for a second. You normally give us an update on it, but obviously, given uh, Stephanie's comments on it and the fact that we are still kind of dancing near all-time highs for the precious metal. Um, how are the charts looking to you right now? The, the charts in gold are still sitting right there. You're trying to break convincingly that triple top. Um, I don't know if I have to show, share the chart, but it's been a long and slow winding sideways base. And it's just frustratingly just below that ceiling. You know, spot gold is holding above 2000 it really has to break through 2100 or so and stay there for a couple of days you know i think that will spark the move higher and i think it would hit 2500 pretty quickly based on the charts that's what the measured move higher would be based on the consolidation that we've seen in the charts stephanie says that she could see gold 3000 by the end of the year there's no telling what the high would be once you get a big base breakout like that but you know the fundamentals are certainly there and the technicals are there what we're still seeing frustratingly with gold near its all-time highs is a continued underperformance in gold mining stocks. There's long periods of time historically where gold mining stocks underperform and or over outperform the spot gold price. We happen to be uh, living through a period here for the last almost 10 years now of underperformance. And whether or not there's good reasons for that underperformance, and I'm sure that I could list some of those reasons uh, or speculate on some of those reasons, it doesn't really matter. The cycles kind of come and go like sine waves, outperformance, under underperformance, back and forth, back and forth. And if gold catches a bid and institutions start piling in, um, gold stocks will come up too. And then they'll move from underperformance to, um, you know, at par performance, and then hopefully eventually to outperformance. So we'll see what happens there, but gold moving to 2,500 or so, should be a big boost to gold mining stocks if that indeed happens. That's what it looks like for us. Silver has even more potential. So the last thing I would say in, in wrapping up, just reflecting on some conversations I've had recently, is we don't know exactly what's going to happen yet. No money manager does. We have very strong beliefs about the fundamentals and about history and about cycles. 
We feel very strongly that we're in a fourth turning, that the next few years are, are going to surprise all of us in what we might see in this world. And that what, what we see in the world, the real world, is certainly going to be felt in the financial markets, too. And I think one of the big reasons that people hire a firm like ours is because we have a viewpoint that is at least somewhat in alignment with, with theirs. And the people that hire us say, you know, we want you to take care of this. We want to delegate this to you. And not just for today, because we're trying to make money today, believe me. But what we're really trying to do as well is not lose. We have to allow for a little bit of wiggle room on the downside, but we want to not lose on the way down when we know that this will eventually happen. We'd like to make money on the downside if we can. Uh, it's very difficult in recent years, but we'd like to if we can. Uh, but at a minimum, we don't want to lose on the downside. And we'd like to layer into the market and get people's money deployed at a level where that they can actually enjoy an 8 to 10 to 12% return for the rest of their lives. There's almost no asset that I can think of that offers those types of returns. Maybe gold does over the balance of you know the next decade or two, but certainly stocks don't. Stocks are priced to achieve negative returns right. in the next And, and just to be super years. clear, you're saying stocks don't at today's current value. At today's price. You know, at today's price. And if you, there's some charts that, you know, I, I've read Husband put out a, a, a piece the other day updating a lot of his charts. They're great. I'll save time by not bringing them up on the screen. But John Husband's charts show minus 4% over the next 10 or 12 years is what we can expect. GMO in Boston puts out some similar stuff. A lot of other people have models that are respectable, that we respect. Valuations are out of this world. We're living through a very different time these last 10 or 15 years. So a passive model or passive basket of stocks today will achieve negative returns. And so with T-bills yielding 5% or more, it's no surprise that, you know, Steph said she's waiting in cash, waiting for better prices. But that weight has literally driven people mad for over, over 10 years now, you know? So that's why people hire us to basically delegate all that worry and to know that they can trust that we're not going to fall prey to that emotional pull that's so hard that's so hard and so we don't know what, what the path is going to be we're, we're going to do our best and we're going to make little mistakes along the way but overall we hope to get it right and to protect the downside and to place our clients money where that they can actually get a return over the rest of their lives all right well thanks mike i want to thank both you guys i mean one for coming on the channel regularly like you always do but again just to remind folks of one of the main reasons why i do that is to have you guys model for viewers of what a good professional financial advisor, how they think, uh, the, the steps they take in response to changing developments on a week-to-week -week basis, um, the rationales they come up for, why they're placing the trades they, they do or, or coming up with the portfolio strategies they do. So thanks for being so transparent in all this, folks. And again, my, my you know, general advice to, to viewers here is um, the vast majority of people uh, don't have the bandwidth, the time, the desire, the experience uh, to manage their money in this highly uncertain, highly involatile environment in which we find ourselves, as well as a good financial advisor who understands all the issues that we've talked about here and that I talked about with Stephanie. And so, you know, if people want to go find their way and talk to folks like you, great. Um, but if whomever they talk to, at least they have your guys' example as, a, as an example of how a good professional does it. And then they can use that to determine who they want to, you know, how they make their decisions in terms of who they ultimately work with. So thank you guys for, again, continuously making yourselves available to serve 
as that model. All right, guys, we'll look as we wrap up here, just a couple quick things. Folks, if you enjoyed this conversation with Stephanie, would like to see her come back on the channel again, please encourage her to do so by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, a reminder that uh, I am back uh, publishing my Adams notes, which are my cliff note uh, deep dive summaries into all the interviews that I do. Uh, I'm publishing those on my Substack over at adamtaggart.substack.com. I put a lot of free content out there almost daily during the week uh, about everything that's going on at Thoughtful Money. But if you want to get my uh, my Adams notes, including my Adams notes for this discussion with Stephanie, uh, then subscribe to the premium service there and you'll get them that way. Um, let's see here in wrapping up, um, uh, John, Mike, I guess, guys, um, just want to say thanks so much. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, I'm really looking forward to the time where I can, um, uh, be, you know, flashing on the screen where folks can go to, to sign up, to get matched with a financial advisor, like I used to do in the past. We are hopefully just a couple of weeks away from that. Um, as you guys know, I've been cramming, uh, with every spare second I have when I'm not making videos, um, or, laid low by COVID or going to family funerals and all the crazy things that have been going on recently um, because I'm studying for that securities exam, which hopefully I will pass. And that will be the key thing that unlocks the final piece of the puzzle here for the full thoughtful money offering. So hopefully guys, you know, maybe in two weeks when you're on here, I'll have good news to share with everybody. But in the interim, guys, thanks so much for coming on the channel. Um, everybody else, Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Adam. Really appreciate being here with you. And we'll see you next week. Thank you, Adam. And happy new year to you and to everyone else, all your viewers. See you soon.